And I remember flying up to London, preparing for this presentation, taking the London Underground Tube, their office in Canary Wharf. And while I'm in the subway, you can see most people are reading newspapers, right? And the headlines of that newspaper was literally another long haul, low cost airline had just gone bankrupt. Because remember, airlines were going bankrupt one after the other, right? I'm like, okay, so here I am going to the export credit agencies to pitch why they should support us, a fledgling long haul, low cost airline with no profit track record when just that morning, another one had gone bust. So I thought that was really ominous, but you know, this was the last chance. There was nothing else, right? If they said no and they had every right to say no, that's it, it would have been game over for us. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 46 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Azran Osman Rani. Now, Azran has done many things in his career, from almost a decade in management consulting, where he helped to restructure Bursa Malaysia from a non-profit government-linked organization to a for-profit company, to being the CEO of a then newly established Air Asia X, the first successful low-cost long-haul airline carrier that went from zero to a billion US dollars in annual revenue and became the first and only public-listed long-haul low-cost airline after six years. Then he went over to iFlix before launching his own digital health tech company called Nullary Hidup, where he now is today. We cover his entire journey including being encouraged by his parents to speak up and speak out when he was just four years old, to how his career has been heavily influenced by phone calls, why he believes so much in Nalari Hidup and all things leadership related. But before we begin, I just wanted to let everyone know that this podcast also has a weekly newsletter, and I am going to be highlighting some of the most interesting things and people that I just don't get to do with this podcast. And because so many people have also asked me what it's like to actually run this podcast, I'll also be including some behind the scenes, including from now on a copy of the very extensive research notes that I always make when I enter into any of these interviews. So if you sign up now, this coming Friday, you will get a copy of the research notes I use to interview Azran, which is 11 pages long and includes some things that we didn't get to cover in this particular interview. To sign up for a newsletter, just head over to the show notes for this episode, which is so thisismywhy.com forward slash 46. Oh, and by the way, I wouldn't be attaching these notes anywhere but that particular newsletter. Now, are you ready for Azran's story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. You were born in 1971 at General Hospital, then you went to Kampung Padan, Bangsar, Talawi, then TDI. But in the meanwhile, (laughs) in the meanwhile, you also moved abroad. You were in Manila when your dad did his PhD. Then you were in New York when your mom did her PhD. So I imagine being so young and moving overseas must have left some kind of impact or influence on you. Well, well, okay. Well, the first time when we were in Manila, I was not even two years old. So I don't have any memory of being in Manila then. I do remember my childhood year in New York. That would have been in 79, 80. 
what I think it left me was being comfortable with change in new situations because suddenly you're uprooted, you've put into a new school system, new friends that you have to form. And then just when everything settled down barely over a year, relocating back in Malaysia, but then again, a completely new school system and all of that. So you just have to adapt. And I think that's been useful for me. Even with that, you know, being able to adapt to change, your parents also gave you something of an unorthodox upbringing. When you were four years old, they would ask you to speak up and speak out with all these professors and visiting academics. So what was that like? Okay, wow. Well, yeah, I guess that that is my childhood. I was brought into the adult conversations at home and I would have to talk to my parents' friends who are, of course, professors themselves, right? And they would ask me about my thoughts on different subjects in school or I had to show them the art. I remember being more worried about the art that I was going to show. But again, that for me gave me the comfort of speaking to adults and speaking up your mind because these adults were asking me what I thought about things. So I think you learn to form your own opinions early on. And I think, again, that's been very helpful and a big part of my formative growing up. And is that why you were so drawn to the American liberal arts education system? Well, I wouldn't put it that way. I think generally when I finished SBM here in Malaysia, back in the late 80s, you were told four choices, right? Medicine, law, accounting, and engineering. And most people did the first three, which meant most of them would go to the UK or some in Australia. And because I can't stand the side of blood, so medicine's not for me. And I remember thinking the legal and accounting textbooks are very boring because they don't have pictures and colors. So I wanted to choose engineering. And I think that, in a way, helped me skew my search towards the US. Because the other part for me, less about the country, but more to be in a place where there were as few Malaysians as possible. And did the fact that you were terrified of snow have any part to play in choosing Stanford to study? (laughs) Well, just probably a little part. I wouldn't say I'm terrified of it. I definitely do enjoy holidays in snow. But what I know I'm really not a big fan of is cold weather where you have to day in and day out get up and go to school or get things done in freezing cold temperatures. So not a fan of having to live in very cold climates. So what was it like studying in Stanford in the early 1990s? Because this was before the era of Yahoo, Google, dot-com boom. So very, very different from what we know now. Yeah, it was different, although it already had a very strong technology focus. And of course, at that time, the poster child for Stanford engineering was Hewlett Packard because they were graduates, right? And of course, Intel and some of these other companies, Cisco. But I think where Stanford probably left its biggest mark with me was being exposed to just the breadth of knowledge that's available out there, right? Because you come from an upbringing where these are the subjects and that's what you learn. And suddenly the menu that you can choose from was massive topics that I had never even dreamt of or had not heard of before. And also in the US education system, you have full flexibility. And so even though officially my degree says electrical engineering, I'm pretty sure I did the barest of minimum engineering classes to get that piece of paper. Everything else was, I remember, history, 
culture, psychology, economics, ballroom dancing, sailing, so many things to just get that breadth of ideas and, and being able to meet people from these very different academic disciplines. When you were in Malaysia, you used to do competitive field hockey, but when you went to Stanford, you end up participating ultimate frisbee. How did that happen? Yes. Well, you know, I remember going my, my first year at Stanford and saying, hey, look, you know, I, I do want to keep being physically active. And so I asked people in my dorm, hey, so where do I play field hockey? And they gave me this puzzle look like field hockey? Don't you mean ice hockey? Because only girls play field hockey in the US. Men play ice hockey. I'm like, oh, okay, that's not going to be good because I can't ice skate to save my life. And ice hockey is a completely different and much more brutal sport. But I was still determined to kind of still be active. And that's sort of where I talked to a lot of people. And I found some people in my dorm who were just having a casual game of ultimate frisbee. And that really fascinated me, like a completely new sport. And what started off as just, you know, casually learning how to throw a frisbee. I became quite obsessed about it. I remember spending late nights, well in past midnight, just learning how to throw this frisbee down the narrow corridors of my dorm to make sure it doesn't fly away or, or hit it, people's doors. And, and eventually then I guess I was pretty decent enough that someone said, hey, you should try out for the Stanford team. Uh, and I did. And that actually became probably the one activity in my four years there that I spent the most amount of time, like 30 hours a week with the ultimate frisbee team. Right? More, like triple the number of hours I spent in lecture halls. And the final year was pretty significant for you as well, right? Could you share yes, a bit about yes. that? Well, because in my final year, we became the number one team in US collegiate ultimate frisbee. Not only that, but very rare, we were the undefeated number one ranked team. Because in a typical season, we would have 50 games, right? 50 matches. And so to not lose a single one of that, it's very rare. It's like probably once in a decade, you have a university that wins. It's, it's a bit like, you know, in English Premier League football, where so many teams win every year, but how many teams win undefeated? I can only think of like Arsenal, I think 2003, 2004, right? So in the last more than 15 years, no one else has repeated that. Being the number one ranked team, right, we got to the national championships. And this was held in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right? And when you're the number one ranked team, everyone is looking at you and gunning to take you down. And I remember the first five games in sort of the pool round, we won all five. And then we got to the semifinals and we won that game as well. So now we're in the finals of the national championship in a season that we were completely undefeated. What was interesting, though, was that the team that we were playing happened to also be the only other undefeated team in the country. Never before were there two undefeated teams meeting in the finals, the last game of the entire season. And this is a team we had never played against before, right? So that's just so rare. And they were from the East Coast. So like normally we do have, you know, rare, but we do have a chance to play with teams from other regions. But this particular team, East Carolina, never seen them before. We heard about their reputation. But anyway, to cut the story short, it was a very intense game. Then ultimate games were quite long. So it was almost three hours. And ultimately we lost 2017. 
So a completely heartbreaking, you know, the taste of defeat when you have that much pressure on your shoulders. And I like to say that, well, it was because of that that I resolved to do my master's so that I could have one more shot at another national championship. And so the following year, we actually also got to the national championship, but this time we lost in the semifinals. So never been a national champion before. That's really unfortunate. After you finished your second national championship, I suppose you had to start thinking about what do I do with my life? Indeed, so- right? Like you, you run out of eligibility, <laughs> so you got to go out to the real world, scary as it is. So you knew you didn't want to be an electrical engineer. How do you end mm-hmm. up with consulting? Well, again, because one of my senior teammates in, in the Ultimate Frisbee team he went on to become a management consultant. So start talking to him amongst other people. And he was telling me about, wow, look, you know, this is a really cool profession. We get to work on multiple projects, travel all around, work in different industries on a wide range of problems. And it was that breadth that excited me the most. I think what you'll find one theme over and over again in my whole life is I get bored easily. I find it difficult to just focus on one thing. And the prospect of a job that gave you that breath of exposure was something that appealed to me a lot. And so I became very determined to want to be a management consultant. So another related theme besides having a short attention span and being interested in too many things is when I do decide I want to do something, I get very obsessed about it, like maniacally obsessed, right? Just like, okay, oh, I just discovered ultimate Frisbee. Like, I don't want to just learn how to throw a Frisbee. I want to be like one of the best ultimate Frisbee players in the country. And so when I discovered about management consulting, I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. And I start applying to all the different firms and got rejected one after the other after the other. And I remember outside my college room, I had like this wall of shame, like 11 rejection letters. But, you know, number 12, I got it. So, you know, like I think each time you get rejected, you learn from that process. You're like, okay, I'm going to keep trying again. Keep trying again. Your 12 application was with Booz Allen Hamilton. You end up going to (laughs) Singapore in 1995. And I think you were posted straight to Thailand after that. Yeah, pretty much once I, I settled in within a few weeks, they're like, okay, we're going to have this project in Bangkok and off you go. Boom. So they must have been quite exciting then because it very, was very, very, you know, like I was still in my early 20s. I think about now, I'm like, wow, you know, I must have been a baby then, right? And being thrown in this deep end and having to pretend I know what I'm doing and being in boardrooms with executives of an oil and gas company, it was just mind blowing now to think about it. And in 1996, you were in such a boardroom presenting to the senior management of an Indonesian client and you bombed that presentation. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, I don't know where you picked it up, but yes, that did happen. That was a really bad presentation. But actually, it wasn't so much the presentation was bad, right? I think I acted unprofessionally because I reacted quite negatively to the client who basically disagreed with whatever I was saying and what my team was saying. And this is where in life, it's not about who's right or who's wrong. Maybe I was naive thinking that, right? Coming from an engineering background where you think there's always a right answer. There's always a formula and and a solution to any problem. But in life, that's not the case. Solutions are not necessarily about who's right. But what matters is, do you gain people's trust. That was a very painful lesson because I got pulled aside by my boss who said, look, one more time that happens, we're going to kick you out. So rude awakening. 
but I deserve that kick in the butt. Soon after that was the Asian financial crisis. And Indeed. you must have seen the nature of your work change a lot because you're doing a lot of technical engineering things. And now mm. it's all about finance. Yes. Yes, yeah. Because of the nature, right, where people were urgently needed in Thailand because of the whole economy, frankly, was under extreme duress. And so even though I had no financial sector experience, I got thrown into this project and I had to learn very quickly. I remember those were the days before Google, right? So you can't find information on the internet. I remember like buying textbooks on corporate finance and credit management and going over these thick textbooks in my hotel room so that I wouldn't look too dumb. Nowadays, oh, any new topic, you can just do a quick Google search. Not then. The world existed before Google. So you learned all about that. And then you eventually moved to McKinsey. And in 2001, <laughs> you moved your entire family and your three-year-old child to Korea. That's how right. Did, how did that happen? Well, on one hand, you know, we survived 97, 98 with the Asian financial crisis. Then things looked quite well, but then early 2000, there was this big dot-com crash. And I think Southeast Asia in particular, there was a bit of a setback. The economy was slowing down. And frankly, all the client work dried up. And so the only real work that was available was in Korea. And Korea is known to be a very tough place to do business, especially as a non-Caucasian foreigner then. But there's no choice, right? Like if that's the only place that's hiring and and there's still work, then you got to do it. And of course, Korea is far enough. You can't just come back every weekend. So it meant having to relocate our young family in Seoul and just, again, being thrown at the deep end. And you got to now figure out, like learn enough Korean so that you can tell the taxi driver where you're going and learn how to connect and build trust with people who may not be trusting. So you got to earn trust in a very difficult situation. So how did you actually earn that trust? Well, I think this time, of course, I've learned to mostly listen first and talk less because of so many things that was happening, the one part that I was focusing on and leading was to help my Korean client put together a three-way joint venture with an American firm and a European firm. Now, two-way joint ventures that are cross-border in different cultures is already very hard. Three-way is even much more complex. So not only were there the technical aspects like the valuation and the financial considerations or the legal structures or corporate structures, but very important for me was, well, how are decisions going to get made? How will this business operate when you know leadership is devolved across people from different nationalities and different time zones? Right. So we had to like really think through how this is going to happen. And I think by, again, spending time being that intermediary, because my Korean clients were not as comfortable to be forthright and, and communicate directly with the two potential partners. So I was the go-between. And then to help listen to everybody and come up with ideas on how we can actually find the right compromise in each of like probably over 100 points that you needed, you know, resolutions on. So that starts with listen more and then position what you want to recommend in the context of what is important to the other people. You must have enjoyed it enough to feel like you wanted to make it a more permanent move to Korea. Yes. Yes. I mean, because, you know, for the first time in my life, like I felt I was really seen as a trusted advisor. 
right? Not just someone who knows how to do slick PowerPoint presentations. You know, what I then learned that real consulting was not in these presentations of decks that a lot of the young consultants focus on. But real consulting was when after work, you go out and share a meal with your client and that your client trusts you enough to really open up about what his or her deep-seated concerns and issues and problems are, and then just wants to get your help to help them achieve clarity or decide what to do. So not in the boardroom, not in formal meetings or presentations, but in just kind of like quiet one-on-one conversations. And that was the time when I felt really being able to be valued by someone for my counsel, right? Not just for my PowerPoint presentations or numbers or Excel spreadsheets. And that's why I felt, look, you know, I, I, I really can see this. Uh, I really enjoyed that professionally. And so I said, look, I'm going to want to change my status in Korea from a visiting consultant to a permanent employee of the McKinsey Korean office. So what happened? Because you ended up returning to KL instead of staying in Korea. So it was the first of what would become a number of seminal phone calls because literally as I was in the meeting room or in the office of the managing partner of McKinsey Korea, having a conversation about wanting to permanently transfer to the Korean office, his phone rings. Again, those times, yes, we had a few mobile phones, but they were very crude phones. So most people used office landlines, right? So his phone rings and it was the managing partner in McKinsey Southeast Asia. We said, hey, look, we've just won the mandate to advise the Kuala Lumpur Stock Exchange on this pretty complex restructuring exercise to turn it from a non-profit sort of government-linked organization to a for-profit company that would be a public listed company by itself. And it would be a very political and complex exercise. And we probably need some senior coverage to deal with a lot of the Malaysian political and regulatory leaders. And Azran's the most senior Malaysian we have in the firm. Can we have him back, please? Right? And I said, oh, okay, well, sure. All right, I'll go back and probably just help the team kick off and get started. But I really wanted to come back to Korea. But then sometimes in life, you start down one path and you think it's temporary, just like Korea initially was temporary. This time, that worked to not to be really amazing also to be Again, being seen as a trusted advisor of the executive chairman of the stock exchange, where he then eventually said, hey, no one understands how a privatized for-profit stock exchange should work. I don't have the resources to keep hiring McKinsey to advise me. I want to, you know, have you join me as an employee, right? And show me that you can turn your ideas into reality. So don't just advise, but do. And and that was the first time when someone, when you put it to me that way, right? It's a bit like, don't just learn how to throw a Frisbee, but like be really good at it. So the idea of, hmm, after almost 10 years of just being an advisor, now someone's saying, look, advice doesn't get too much, right? Like you've got to be able to do it. And here was an opportunity from someone that I had a lot of respect for who said, I think you should do this. And so I did. So I quit McKinsey and joined my client. So this person was the former executive chairman, Mohammed Aslan Hashim. And he didn't just give you the challenge. He asked you to take a 50% pay cut. So it was Of course. <laughs> yeah, because like, we don't pay McKinsey salary. So this is all I can offer you, right? And you got to take it. So I'm like, oh, okay. What were the highlights from that time for you? 
Oh, so many things. I mean, clearly, your first life was a lot more sensible because instead of flying around every week like a mad person, I think for that year and a half, I was only in Malaysia. I mean, I had to go to a few other places in Sabah, Sarawak, North and South Peninsula to meet stakeholders, but nothing like having to go to the airport and travel around the world. So just much appreciated stability in my travel schedule. The other thing for me that was like, wow, was the whole experience of dealing with the Malaysian parliament, because to give effect to the corporatization and privatization of the stock exchange, we needed to have five bills passed in parliament. Five, right? And I had to deal, and it was complex. It was like the Securities Industries Act, Malaysian Derivatives Exchange Act, and the Malaysian Securities Clearinghouse Act, etc. So these are complex pieces of legislation. And actually, I think the Minister of Finance and the Deputy Minister of Finance just had no interest in it, right? Because it was just not very exciting. And I was left with the newly appointed Deputy Finance Minister 2, right? Who just transferred from being the Deputy Tourism Minister. So her name was Dato Ng Yen Yen. And she just got this role and her seniors thought, look, it's yours. You've got to now shepherd these five bills. And uh, credit to her, she took on that challenge. And, and I had the privilege of having to sit in a room with her like all day, explaining to her like these are how all these bills worked. And I remember then also being in parliament that one day that she had to debate and convince the other parliamentarians to vote on it. And when she got questions, you know, from the members of the opposition or even her own party, like I had to like write answers on a piece of paper and pass it to her, you know, and in Bahasa, mind you, because it's in the, in the parliament. So that again, like it's one of these things you do once in your life, right? And I, I know some people make a career out of it, but I was like, wow, definitely not your regular corporate experience. So not long after Muhammad Aslan Hashim left, you also left to join Astro. Yes. So how did yes. that happen? Well, another phone call. And again, right, because he's like, well, you know, I think you should be, you know, like the CFO of this new listed company. I'm like, yeah, okay. But he then said, well, but I'm retiring. I'm going to go play golf. I'm like, oh, but I joined because of you, right? Like, if you're not going to be here. I don't know whether I want to stay. And again, in life, suddenly when you're in that period of like, hmm, do I really want to stay or not? A phone rings and, and someone said, I want you to meet the CEO of Astro. I'm like, okay. At that point, Astro had also just completed their IPO. It raised, uh, I think, 2 billion ringgit. And they wanted to go from being a Malaysian television broadcaster to being a regional television broadcaster. So they wanted to make a lot of investments across the region and said whether I wanted to lead that effort. I said, wow, okay, well, I don't know anything about broadcasting or entertainment, but I'm game for a challenge. You give me a challenge, I want to take it. So that's what I did. I imagine for a lot of people, the idea of having to restart and learn an entire industry from scratch is daunting. So can you give us an idea of how you started that journey? Because you didn't know well, anything about tech. But what I had a lot of experience by then was learning about new industries, right? Because again, right, I come from an engineering background and first I had to learn oil and gas. Then I had to learn steel manufacturing. Then I had to learn banking, right? Then telcos. So this is something new. And again, right, by then there was probably Google, but there wasn't the richness of information available. A lot of it was textbooks. A lot of it was finding out who are the smart people around the world and how do I get connected with them and ask them a ton of questions. And so it was hard work to learn. But, you know, I think I kind of enjoyed that, right? Like just the discovery phase. 
So one of the things I've picked up is that for Indonesia, in 10 mm. months, you hired 450 people, you built five Indonesian cable channels, launched a national sales and distribution network, built a broadcast center, a lot of things that you achieved in just 10 months. But then you often say as well, that one of your big failures was that you had to shut down the business and let go of 450 people. And I wonder, you know, looking back, what happened and what kind of lessons you derived from that experience? Well, again, number one lesson is real business is not what you write on a business plan because, you know, so many people spend so much effort trying to have the perfect business plan, the perfect 10-year cash flow models, et cetera. But you can plan all you want. But in life, it's not about what's on paper but it's the relationships that you form. And also when it comes to relationships, when things are rosy, it's always easier to come to an agreement, you know, make decisions together. Where it gets tough is when real differences of opinions come into play. And that's when conflict comes in, right? And so in this case, you know, the two principles, the, the Malaysian principle that I represent and the Indonesian principle didn't get along, right? They just had some fundamental disagreements and, and that led to a mutual decision not to continue to fund this new venture. And without funding, you die, right? So that's the reality that relationships can appear appear to be strong initially, but if it's not nurtured and not maintained, it will fracture. And these are the consequences. You okay. were 36 in 2007 when you mm. became the CEO of X. How did that happen? Yes. Another phone call. Because once the decision was made to effectively pull out of that Indonesian business, right? I'm kind of again stuck. Okay, well, what do I do? Again, in life, phone call comes in and someone says, I'd like to you to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Tony Fernandez. I was like, oh, who is he? Didn't even know, like, you know, I was thinking, am I going to meet some kind of expat guy? Turns out he's another Malaysian from KL. And so that's, that's life, right? Like random phone calls happen. And I think it's mainly because rather than kind of look for opportunities, but if you focus on doing what you do and you really are obsessed about it, I think your work will speak for itself. And then people come and look you up. And were you intrigued right from that conversation that this is something you wanted to enter into? Well, mainly because, I mean, first of all, like, Tony's a probably bar none, one of the most amazing salespeople, right? Like if he wants to sell you in an idea or a concept, you're going to get convinced. But what really intrigued me was when he said, no one in the world has ever done a low-cost, long-haul model. All the experts in the industry say it cannot be done. We should try just for the sake of proving the world wrong, right? And so I guess he knew which buttons to press with me, right? Like when you frame it as that challenge, like how can I not just drop everything and say, all right, game on, let's do this. So what was it that you felt you could bring to the table that was different? Because you had Freddie Lakers, you had Oasis, Hong Kong. Even AirAsia itself, you had to license the brand from because they didn't believe in you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, ultimately for me, number one, it's the curiosity to look at things differently, to challenge a lot of assumptions. But I think number two, very important as a leader is how do you paint a compelling picture that convinces people who have the real experience and industry expertise to come on board this mission to go along the ride with you because you can't tackle these problems by yourself 
right? And so you do need to rely on people who are much smarter than you. But our job as leaders is to convince them why they should leave their established organizations and join you on crazy missions. And so that's part of what we have to do, right? We have to be very compelling. We have to be very persuasive. And if you assemble the right team and you excite them enough about this idea of doing something that no one in the world has ever done before, then I think that's a big part of where the magic happens. So once you had that right team, how did you go about figuring out a model that was sustainable? Oh, I think ultimately it took us years to really understand you know, how do you create a sustainable airline? Now, of course, a lot of people will immediately, and they have every right to say, but AirAsiax never figured out because they only look at it from an external, overall consolidated. But I think internally, because we could look at, for example, the profitability of our business by individual routes and destinations that we flew to and which types of planes, we found and we were very clear what drives profitability. Right? In this case, you can only be profitable in markets where you are the number one player. So you got to choose which markets to compete in and you have to play to win. You can't play to be number two or number three. So what does that mean, right? That means it's better to be a big fish in a few ponds than a small fish in many ponds. And once you've figured out the formula, we then embarked on this pretty massive restructuring exercise. We pulled out of Europe. We canceled our London and Paris routes. Most people thought, oh, you know, see, they're withdrawing, so long haul doesn't work. Actually, it's not about the distance. It has nothing to do with the distance. It has everything to do with better, for example, be the number one airline flying into Australia or Japan or Korea instead of, you know, one flight a day to London when Emirates by themselves have eight A380 planes flying to London every day, right? So you got to choose where you play and then you've got to win. And when we were able to demonstrate that model and execute that model, we were able to convince pretty sophisticated investors in 2013 to say, okay, I will buy your IPO shares because your explanation makes sense. Right. And so ultimately, to me, the validation is not just because I think low cost long haul can work, but we were able to build a case and convince very sophisticated investors that, yes, it can work. Now, ultimately, of course, you know, 2014 became no, no one predicted 2014. The, the, within less than a year of our IPO, the whole aviation sector went upside down because of what we call black swan events, right? Things that are highly improbable, but when they happen, they have massive impact. So March, 2014, MH370, a plane went missing. July, 2014, a plane was shot down over Europe. And then in December, uh, a plane was lost on route from Indonesia to Singapore. And all of them, while they're not Airage X, they had a tremendous effect on our market, specifically out of China and Australia, demand plummeted by double digit rates, right? In the first year as an IPO or list public listed company and actually never recovered from that. So that's life. Like you can go through the hard work, figure out what works, what doesn't work, convince people and they give you capital. But yet who would have predicted 2014? Just but like you've... many people didn't predict it 2020, right? But even before 2014, I mean, it seems as though you were hit by unfortunate incidences all the time, beginning with mm. 2008 financial crisis. 8, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. That's how I lose all my hair. <laughs> so tell us about 2008 because that's when the oil price went crazy, right? And it really impacted. Well, yeah, because we launched in November 2007 and literally just a few months after we launched, the world turned upside down because first you got to deal with the global financial crisis where banks who have even signed agreements to provide financing to you all pulled out 
hung up to dry, right? Trying to like, how do we even survive this without financing? And at the same time, you're dealing with that crisis, another crisis built up, which was oil prices. Now for an airline like ours, oil is almost 50% of our cost, right? And oil went from, if you think about it, 2007, you put a business plan together, right? How do you decide what's the price of oil in your model? You look back and you see, oh, 2002 to 2007, oil was about 50 to $70 a barrel. Let's be a bit conservative and call it $75 a barrel, which is what we put on business. And in the first six months of 2008, it almost doubled to over $140 a barrel. And this is where, again, airlines started panicking. And what do boards and investors tell you to do? Hedge your fuel, right? What does hedging mean? Hedging people say, well, it mitigates your risk. Actually, it was meant to be a risk mitigator, turned out to be a risk creator. Because by fixing the price of oil, on one you say, ah, okay, no more volatility. Right? Let's say oil is now $90 a barrel. And you go to the bank and you say, I don't like volatility. I want to cap my price of oil for the next 12 months. Okay, $100 a barrel, fixed price. Right? And then, of course, after that, kept going up all the way to $140 a barrel by July. And you're like, wow, I'm really smart. Right? I took away the volatility. I avoided all this. Then from July to December 2008, it crashed all the way under $40 a barrel. And you've locked in your price of oil at $100 a barrel. So just dealing with those issues was just insane. Right? Like, again, nothing that's ever been written in textbooks. No one could have anticipated it. I mean, 50 airlines went belly up, but you didn't. So how mm. did you pull through? Oh, I, I like to use the term sheer dumb luck because it just so happens that the bank who was the counterparty to a fuel hedge, they went bankrupt before us. And then before that, you actually secured this meeting with this European export credit agency in London. And that mm. was sort of like the pitch of a lifetime for you. Can you share a bit of that experience? Well, so remember when I shared that early in the year, the banks who had signed our legal agreements to provide financing all pulled out, right? So now there's no more financing, no more financing. How do you get planes? No planes, you know, no airline, right? And at that point, the last lender, lender of last resort was the European credit agencies because they wanted to support European exports, in this case, Airbus, right? Uh, because if we can't buy Airbus planes, then of course, Airbus are also not going to be in a good position. But the European export credit agencies usually have a rule, right? Like they only provide their credit guarantees to airlines with a three-year profit track record. Number one, we've been in business less than a year and we're definitely nowhere near profitability. So first, just somehow getting them, convincing them to just even give us time for one meeting was already very hard, but somehow we did it. And I remember flying up to London, preparing for this presentation, taking the London Underground Tube, their office in Canary Wharf. And while I'm in the subway, you can see most people are reading newspapers, right? And the headlines of that newspaper was literally another long haul, low cost airline had just gone bankrupt. Because remember, airlines were going bankrupt one after the other, right? I'm like, okay, so here I am going to the export credit agencies to pitch why they should support us, a fledgling long-haul low-cost airline with no profit track record when just that morning, another one had gone bust. So I thought that was really ominous, but you know, this was the last chance. There was nothing else, right? If they said no and they had every right to say no, that's it, it would have been game over for us. What do you think convinced um, them to say yes? So I honestly don't know because I remember that day I was just really just running on adrenaline. I have no recollection of what I said because it was just all adrenaline. And I remember after that where I look at this committee, they're very like 
stoic, no expression. I said, we will come back to you in a few weeks. Okay. And you go back and you let crash. Oh, I don't know what I said. And six weeks later, they did come back and said they will provide us guarantees. Very difficult terms, but at least it was a lifeline. So that's life. I feel like, you know, in what you've shared so far, it's very clear. No matter what plan you've made, it just doesn't work out. <laughs> so mm, that's, probably exactly. why you, that's probably why you always say, I don't have a long-term plan, but you want to be right. flexible and nimble all the time. Because you have to. It's, it's not by choice. The world dictates it that way. I loved some of the things that I noticed during your tenure. One of the things was that you were really prioritizing the fact that information was flowing up to you to ensure that mm -hmm. you would be nimble to respond to things that other larger airlines would not be able to. Can you give an example of what that was like and how you ensure it went up? Because you scaled very quickly to 2,500 staff. That's a lot. That is a lot, right? And it's one of these things where you learn somehow naturally silos get formed, right? People start to not talk or communicate or it only happens at certain meetings. So information has to go up before it can come down. So number one, that is very slow and very inefficient, right? And so as a leader, what I learned is number one, you can't just say, oh, come to me if you've got a problem. No one's going to come to you. Or if you just go and try to say hello to everyone, you know, management by walkabout, at best, you'll just get, oh, everything is good, boss. Like no one's really going to stop you and then have a deep conversation with you. Or if you have a town hall meeting, right? And you say, all right, guys, this is the plan for the quarter. Any questions? No one's going to put up their hand. And so as a leader, you can't say, oh, well, I've done my part. It doesn't work that way because there's still a lot of issues and problems and frustrations on the ground. They're just not coming up to you. So therefore, as leaders, we have to figure out what would it take for us to get in there and bring the information up. And so that included things like having what I now call honesty hour sessions, basically just forums where you provide your employees the safety of anonymity, where people can say anything that they want completely anonymously and confidentially. Like either they just write it down or we use anonymous Google forms, but then like real unadulterated problems start to come up. Now, the first few times you do this, people may not believe you. They may not trust you. So they may not bring up much but what they're really doing is they're testing you to see how will you respond if they just throw a small problem at you. Because a lot of times leaders, right, when an employee throws a problem at you, your first reaction is to be defensive, to explain that problem away. Oh, well, the reason why we can't do it is because we don't have enough budget. I'm waiting for this approval or, or that. And so if you take that position next time, the employee is going to, oh, what's the point of surfacing issues? Because I'm just going to get blown off. But if you're committed to the process and you're committed to win over the trust of your employees to say, no matter what the issue is, even if it is like, I'm upset because we ran out of cookies in the pantry and you take that problem seriously. And if that were on Friday, by Monday, the cookies are all stopped. So next time around, employees might go, okay, let's try a slightly bigger problem, right? So it comes back to the first principle I said earlier, which is you've got to earn trust as leaders. You can't demand it by just the sheer position or authority that you hold. Wasn't there an example of the aircraft staff was saying that there were wheelchair people on the plane? Oh, that story. Yes. Yeah. Well, because again, it's a good example of a problem that I never knew existed, where like a flight attendant started to complain that when her flight ends, she arrives back at the airport and she's got to wait until all the passengers disembark before she can leave. But if there's someone in there who needs a wheelchair, and it's quite common, one of every three flights, someone does need a wheelchair. And if that wheelchair is not there at the door, 
And if it takes longer than five minutes, if it's like 20, 30 minutes, the wheelchair's not there, you can bet the passenger is going to be very upset. And guess what? The passenger is going to start scolding the flight attendant through no fault of him or her because it's another department's responsibility, the ground operations team. And so first, it was through this process that we discovered it. We had no idea it even existed. Second, oh, I have no idea how to solve it. But by bringing out in the open, then you start to realize, well, the ground operations team start to get defensive. They're like, look, it's not a problem. We don't have enough budget, not enough manpower, not enough wheelchairs. We can't be at the gate at every single gate because, as they say, we can have a plan, but the flights don't come exactly on time. So you got to move around. And so we've got to tactically reallocate our resources, our very limited resources. And sometimes some gates get missed for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. So if you want us to solve it, give us more manpower and more wheelchairs. Well, okay, if that was the only way to solve every problem, which is just to throw money at it, then, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to be very successful in business. But that's also where, because we create the right forum where people from other departments heard about it and they said, one in particular, the engineering guy said, hey, interesting, we never knew you guys had the problem, but here's an idea, which is, doesn't matter whether the plane is early on time or late when the plane comes in, what will definitely be there when the plane comes in is the engineering van. Because in the engineering van is the guy that holds the two lollipops, right? When the lollipops cross, the pilot knows, press the brake, the wheel will stop exactly on this line painted on the tarmac. Lollipop man puts thumbs up and the arrow bridge will fit nicely on the door. So the engineer said, what if we kept a backup foldable wheelchair in the van? So that if ever the main ground operations wheelchair is late, flight attendant, get the backup wheelchair, sort your client out, your customer up first, they're happy, and then let the ground operations team catch up. Oh, no one thought about that as a solution because we always, in our organizations, we just think within our own resources, right? Ground operations doesn't think about that being a solution because the engineering van is not in their department, not under their P&L. Another one I noticed you said before is that you didn't wait for customers to make decisions. You went to their face and told them to fly to places they hadn't dreamt of. How did you do that? Well, I mean, to me, it's this whole concept of you have to create demand, Because if you only wait for demand to happen, you will always be reactive. And I guess for me, probably the thing that really brought this concept to light was our route to Chengdu in the Sichuan province in West China. Because when we started flying, most Malaysians had never heard of Chengdu. When they think about going to China for a holiday, it is Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, right? Like Chengdu, what's there in Chengdu? And consequently, for over a year, that route lost a lot of money. And I had a lot of pressure from my board, like just stop flying there. You're losing money with every flight. But somehow I kind of felt like if only people knew about what you can do in Chengdu, there are panda bears, beautiful places like Zhujiaigo, the Sichuan cuisine, right? So many things, but you've got to like really communicate that out and figure out how do you create demand that didn't exist there before. And eventually Chengdu became one of our most profitable routes because it was always full of people going to Chengdu or coming in from Chengdu. But it took a lot of like, you know, 18, 24 months to make that work. What were the things that you found most effective in creating that demand? As a marketer, what I've learned is we're actually not very smart. We can't imagine or put ourselves in in our target audience. Traditionally, marketers always thought, right? Like, oh yeah, you know, we're smart. We look at research and yeah, this is what our customers need. But actually, I was, I'm a believer now in the saying like you can't know for sure, but let's try so many different things and then just see what works and what doesn't work. And I think this is also why 2008, 2009, then 
the internet had just started. So you could now run many experiments. And that's the power of advertising over the internet. You don't need to like just have many billboards or TV commercials, but you can put different ads, different messaging, different creatives and see which ones work. And then you adjust and you reallocate your marketing spend to the ones that do. And one of the things that I've noticed as well is that you also made some mistakes. There was a $50 million mistake with the in-flight entertainment. Can you share with us about that? Uh, a lot of mistakes. I mean, that, that's just one tiny example. <laughs> but the, the point is when you try to do something new, when you try to do something that no one else has ever done before, it is impossible to always get it right. Like many organizations, if you don't tolerate failure, right? And so you must get it exactly right, then you launch. But then you lose out on speed. So ours was a philosophy that, look, just try quickly 10 things. And even if eight out of 10 fail, that's okay. We move on, we learn. So one of the many examples was we thought we would be the first low-cost airline in the world to have full in-seat, in-flight entertainment screens in the back of every economy seat. So if you were actually in an AirAsia X plane, not AirAsia, AirAsia X plane, 2008, 2009, you see these, not just the regular in-flight entertainment screens, but then things like touchscreen was quite innovative. It even had instant messaging so that on the plane you're bored, you kind of like that person on row 13G, you can send a message, hi, 13G, I'm at you know, 17F, nice to meet you. That part was popular. You pre-order your meals so you don't have to wait for the flight attendant to come with a cart to ask you what you want. You can just kind of select your meals. That, again, good idea in theory. Turns out, though, it became a terrible customer experience because, number one, you learn people don't want to eat at the same time. They just eat whenever they feel like it. And when they do buy, they want it now. They don't want to wait 15, 20 minutes. But the problem then becomes, okay, if all your orders go straight to the galley and the flight attendant now has to go 14G wants a Coke, 13F wants a hamburger, 22D wants chicken rice, right? And then 17C wants nasi lemak. All, suddenly the whole system kind of just fell apart. Customers were upset. Even the flight attendants were upset. But the single biggest reason though was we thought, hey, we've got in-flight entertainment screens. Maybe we can put in TV shows and movies that people just pay a small fee, let's say $5, $10. Would they watch movies? Turns out there were actually many people refused to pay money to watch TV shows, right? But yet every single plight, every single screen, every single movie title, you have to pay a royalty fee to the Hollywood studios. So now you, you start the flight with this fixed cost from all these royalty fees. If you can't sell enough, you're going to lose money. But if you set your price too high, less people will be willing to pay. You set your price too low, you can't cover your costs. And we end up losing a ton of money just from the TV entertainment systems let alone all the issues about food ordering and all of that. And so we ended up having to scrap that whole system. It was a 12 million US dollar write-off. So that's about 50 million ringgit down the drain. You were trying many, many different things and you mm. scrapped those that don't work, but you also needed to run for a time to see whether it would or would not work. So how do you balance and juggle those different initiatives and then decide, yes. okay, it's done. This is not going to work. It's time to change. Sure, That's a very good point. And I think as a leader... Here's what I learned. Number one, very hard to evaluate an initiative on a standalone basis, right? Like because sometimes you just got to be resilient. You got to persevere, keep being creative, right? Find a way around all the obstacles. But at what point do you call it quits? So what I've learned is while it's hard to evaluate on a standalone basis, it is easier, not easy, but easier to do it on a relative basis. That means if I stop doing that, do I have a better alternative? I need to be convinced that it's a better alternative, better use of my time, my focus, or my team's focus, our capital, our resources. 
So you need to develop a better plan B. Then it's time to switch. So you definitely figure out some things that most certainly work, like the low-cost airline flatbeds. And I think mm-hmm. Singapore Airlines initially said, oh, this is not going to work, you know, not bundling entertainment. They even hired yeah. your commercial director in the end because they saw it worked. So how did you stay ahead of the curve when all your competitors were watching you and copying what you were doing once they saw it worked? That's okay because by the time they copy, that means they're looking at what we've already done. So the only way you survive is you're working on the next thing, right? Because even if they heard, oh, wow, they launched this service. Okay, it'll take them a few months to launch it. But you've already got like two or three things that you're already in your pipeline. So they'll always be behind you if all they do is they copy. And that's why I'm not a believer in this whole, let's do industry benchmarking. Let's look for case studies before we do something. Because that means you'll always be a follower, right? Like I think you've got to have the courage to do new things that no one else has ever done. So you're doing all this and you achieved a lot because the IPO'd in June 2013 with a $1 yes, billion yes. $1 valuation. So how do you end up moving again to a totally new industry, iFlix? Well, I think what I learned is that the things that I'm good at and the things I'm bad at, right? I'm probably better at the early stage, the ideation, the willingness to try new things. But when something becomes very big, like a billion dollar company, you know, that's publicly listed, that's got audit committees and risk management committees and much more conservative because you have something to lose, they probably by then need an adult to run it. And I'm the crazy kid that just keeps rocking the boat. So time to pass the helm to kind of more responsible adults. And when I caught up with my former friends, Patrick Grove, who's the founder of Catcha and had this crazy idea of building iFlix, didn't take a lot to convince me, right? We just paint a crazy vision. Like I'm all for it, right? Let's just, let's do it. I think it starts out with this Monday morning conversation in Starbucks with Mark Britt. It was coffee. It was in Bangsa Shopping Center. It's not Starbucks. I can't remember where. Maybe La Bodega then. I don't know. But yeah, it was just one coffee meeting. And then that afternoon, we went over to Patrick's office and we just started brainstorming and write a whole bunch of stuff on the whiteboard. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to sign up. Let's do this. What was it that allowed you to make that decision? That This is what I want to jump into next. Again, it is when at least you have this vision in your head of something that doesn't exist before that could have a big impact, right? And I think one of the key insights was in media, you realize that all these gigantic media companies, but they actually are very parochial. They're like big in Malaysia only or big in Hong Kong only or big in Singapore only because media had always been very regulated licenses and local ownership requirements. That's why media was always a local industry. But the internet now gave us the opportunity to truly democratize it, to be able to access any consumer from Dhaka, Senegal, all the way to Denpasar in Bali. And so that meant suddenly, instead of, for example, buying content for 30 million people, you can negotiate with Hollywood studios to buy content for a billion people. Very, very different economics. No one had thought about serving the mass market in emerging markets that way. So I'm all game for crazy things. So I jumped in. And so you started in 2015, you had few people, laptops, no product. What was the game plan to kickstart iFlix? I don't know whether we really had a plan. We were just constantly firefighting along the way. I remember initially we were like, okay, I think we can start in March. Oh no, missed that deadline. Let's start in April. Oh, missed that deadline. Let's start in 1st of May. Oh, missed that deadline. 15th May, missed that deadline. But 26th May, 
2015 at 6 p.m. We went live, mainly because number one, you do pretty tight deadlines. You try, try, knowing that, okay, if we fail, we fail, but we learn from it and we move on, right? It's that willingness to just kind of go fast and build basic version number one. And basic version number one of iFlix was pretty crap, but we just want to just put it out in the market, quickly test it out, and then keep iterating, keep relentlessly iterating. And was local content something that you were considering that you really wanted to produce? Because I think 50% of content budget went into original productions. Oh, I don't think it was ever that high 50%, but it was significant. Yeah, we wanted to. We knew it was going to be very distinctive, mainly because the whole iFlix proposition is to address that mass market segment. For example, in Malaysia, if we sit here in Kuala Lumpur and fancy places like Bangsa or Damansara, right? You think, oh, football is English Premier League, right? Everyone is either a Manchester United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal fan. But actually in Malaysia, for every one person that watches English Premier League, four to five people watch Malaysian football and they don't connect. So it's a completely different segment. So simply pushing Hollywood means you only cover the segments in Kuala Lumpur, but you're going to ignore the segments that are much, much more larger and much more local in their requirements. So that is why we felt it is important to be distinctive with local content. But the thing about local content is there's not a lot of it existing immediately. So you've got to like produce stuff on your own. And that's hard. You can't do it immediately. Right? It just takes a long time to, to build it up. And what about just gaining that kind of support from the customers? Because within six months after launch, you got a million subscribers. Two months after, it was a million and a half. So I think for anyone with a new idea to get any mm-hmm. amount of subscribers, let alone a million, is huge. So what did you do? Like, what was the game plan? I want to tell you, the game plan that we started with completely failed, right? Because we thought initially, okay, well, if a typical satellite TV subscription is 100 ringgit a month, imagine if we only offered 10 ringgit a month. Surely we'll get a lot of people. Turns out, next to nothing. Only my own friends and family members that I kind of forced them to subscribe to iFlix. So initially, hardly any take up. Right? And then you're like, you have to now problem solve it. What could be the problems? Maybe it can't be price point. Maybe it's the payment channels. Right? Maybe people don't find it convenient to use a credit card or online banking. Okay, what are they familiar with? So back in 2015, the number one payment channel for e-commerce, for example, e-commerce was growing very fast, was cash on delivery. Right? Because this is all before e-wallets and all of that, right? And cash on delivery, how does that work with iFlix? So we had to experiment. We said, okay, at the end of your 30-day free trial, we will send a guy on a motorcycle to your home to collect your 10 ringgit. It costs us more than 10 ringgit to pay the guy on the motorcycle to go, but we did it anyway because we needed to learn. And you know what we learned? They still didn't want to pay. So, hmm, okay, well, if that doesn't work, then what else, right? And just so happened, someone came up to me and said, hey, look, thank you for launching iFlix. I'm a big fan. You know, I watch it two or three hours a day. I'm on my fourth free trial. So that, oh, so they like watching iFlix. They just hate the idea of paying for it. So no matter what payment channels we put in, they wouldn't have paid for it. So that's where we then had to broaden the problem. Think, okay, well, if the end user doesn't want to pay for iFlix, but they do like watching it. So who will benefit if more people watch iFlix? Now, most people think advertisers. But what I can tell you is like, if I have to stuff you with ads, you're going to run away from the iPlatform, right? Because now it's going to be annoying. Instead, we said, well, actually, telecom companies 
would really love it if people watch iFlix because they were going through this like change in business model where you know 50% of their revenues, voice calls, SMS were disappearing and only data revenues were growing. And video is the most data intensive application, right? 70% of all data bandwidth on the internet is video. So we gave video applications for free. They would want to use up a lot more data. And so that became the model, which was convincing telcos to buy iFlix subscriptions from us and give it to their subscribers for free to stimulate more data usage. And in the end, buying more data at a higher price than they're paying for iFlix. And of course, when you work with telcos, they've got millions and millions of customers. So it became a much faster way of rolling out than us trying to spend money on Google and Facebook ads and convincing people to download iFlix one at a time and then convincing them to pay us 10 ringgit a month. That would have taken forever. I mean, I just thought it was brilliant the way that you bundle it. It's sort of like in mm. Air Asia, you bundle it, your offers with hotels. And now in Aluria, so you bundle it with your other companies, like insurance companies. And in all of that, right, why was mm-hmm. rapid expansion such a huge, huge priority? I think because the reality in this world is if you remain small, you're going to get crushed. And mainly because the businesses that I chose to compete in, right, airlines or entertainment or healthcare, these are big budget industries where scale matters. So while you might be able to start small, you're not going to last for a long time being small. So you got to fight for scale. And that's why being able to move fast is crucial. So in 2015, you end up going to San Francisco to visit some old Stanford mates and you end up learning about Umara Health. Can you share mm-hmm. a bit about that? Well, so again, full circle in life, right? we started talking about Ultimate Frisbee. And one of my Ultimate Frisbee team members was a co-founder of a company in San Francisco called Omada Health. And we went there for an Ultimate Frisbee team reunion. I caught up with him and he was telling me about his business. I was like, oh, that's very similar to what I do. I'm using uh, digital marketing to get people addicted to mindless TV entertainment. And he's using the same digital marketing to get people addicted to a healthier lifestyle. That's kind of more cool, right? But also because they were very focused on diabetes. And, And it really connected with me on a personal level because... Uh, 10 years ago, I lost my own father to diabetes. So that kind of opened my eyes in terms of how digital can actually really positively impact people's lives. Because the other thing also, unfortunately, coming from Malaysia is we are the number one most unhealthy country in Asia, right, in terms of our rate of obesity and diabetes. So that got me like really fired up. And I said, okay, well, you know, maybe I want to do something like Omada Health for Southeast Asia, because again, When we started iFlix, everybody wrote us off, or at least 115 investors wrote us off because they said there's already a global giant called Netflix. But we showed that if you create something local, relevant for the mass market, there will always be space. So same thing, right? Like Omada is great, but Omada is not tailored to the Malaysian consumers, the Indonesian consumers, the Thai consumers, the Filipino consumers. So there's an opportunity. Were you thinking about this immediately after seeing Omada? Because you went in 2015, you launched in 2017. So that's a two-year. Of course, sometimes things percolate, right? The seed is planted. But I think the catalyst to me was in 2017. I mean, it was, you know, it was tough, right? Because, you know, we, we went through some challenging periods, you know, kind of trying to keep the company afloat, had to even like retrench staff and, you know, trying to just survive. But ultimately we like, suddenly raised $90 million. And now iFlix had a lot more capital to expand. So I felt incredibly relieved that that happened. And just so the day that money came in, 
like, poof, I remember 28th, February, 2017. Wow. Like, you know, after like surviving, like you don't know whether, you, you know, will we ever pull it through? And finally the light appears at the end of the tunnel. And then first March, 2017, you just have a random conversation with a friend about your purpose in life. Right. And he gave me this Ikigai framework and guided me through it. And that's kind of how I kind of like, you know what, this reminds me of my conversation in San Francisco in 2015. I'm going to actually now commit to building it. Now's the time. I mean, you really, really committed because you said before you went all in and you bet your kids' education, your life savings, everything into this idea of Nellery. But why? I mean, like, that's a huge bet. At the, you know, it's not as though you have just started your career. You already have kids and everything else. Yeah, well, to me, I feel like if I'm not 100% convinced, there's no way I can convince anyone else. So I need to be like mentally all in. And mentally all in, there's theoretically, yeah, yeah, I'm convinced. But the only way you can truly convince yourself is what are you going to put online to really back what you believe, right? And this is where I felt, okay, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. Like just kind of figure out how much I've got in my different savings accounts and cobble this stuff together and just go, launch, commit. So one of the unique things I read about Nellery is that it's more activity-based as opposed to results-oriented. Can you share a bit? The other way around. Results-oriented than it. Well, because again, I'm obsessed with problems, right? What are the problems that big companies are not solving right now? So when it comes to health, because of the experience of my father and learning about what Omada does, I realized that there's this category of health called chronic conditions. Chronic conditions are conditions like diabetes and heart diseases or cancer or mental health that you cannot solve with a single visit to the doctor. The way if you broke an arm or you had a flu, you can solve it. Those are called acute conditions, right? But the whole healthcare system was really designed for acute conditions. You make an appointment or you go to the hospital or clinic and you have a session with the doctor and the doctor kind of gives you a prescription, then you go away. But chronic conditions cannot be solved with one-off conditions, one-off consultations. So you need a different model of care. And the second thing you realize is that healthcare has been so specialized that every healthcare professional looks at your health only in tiny silos. The cardiologist only looks at your heart. The gastroenterologist only looks at your gut. The psychologist only looks at your mental health or the dietitian only looks at your, what you eat. But when it comes to chronic conditions, they're deeply interrelated. And again, right, as you know, now, as I start to understand that, I realized that when, you know, my, my father died of diabetes and cancer, you know, the journey was extremely challenging. You look back now, you realize, oh, depression and anxiety. And then you do your research and you realize that there are strong correlations between diabetes and depression, between anxiety and heart diseases. But as a healthcare system, we don't address them holistically. So there's a way of, let's say, well, there's an opportunity to do that. And the third, what frustrates people in the industry is, Healthcare expenditure is going up at double-digit rates every single year, but yet more people are getting sick. So something is not right, right? Like if you have to keep paying more for healthcare, but yet more people are getting sick. The reason for that is because it's based on activities. You are paying for a consultation, you're paying for a prescription, or even digital health, you're paying to track your steps or count your sleep or eat your calories. Those are activities, but they don't necessarily translate into actual health improvements. So we're like, imagine if we could figure out a way to change the economics to one where you're paid on success, only if someone gets healthy. 
And so that was why when we not only just look at the problem at a very high level of like, okay, well, a lot of Malaysians are unhealthy, but what specifically are the challenges? Why today's industry players are not addressing it? It's a bit like, okay, a lot of people want to go to Australia or London for a holiday, but why is it that many people can't? What about Emirates and Singapore Airlines and Cathay Pacific that excludes this big segment? Similarly to entertainment, right? What is it about today's satellite and cable companies that excludes millions and millions of people who don't have a hundred ringgit a month for a subscription? So same thing with healthcare, right? Once you define the problem, then you can start to look at it in ways very differently from these big companies. And you don't only break down the silo, you, you also ensure it's very localized. How important yes. is that? Very important, right? Because, you know, just like we talked about football, right? English Premier League versus local Malaysian football, well, same thing, right? I mean, in California, when it comes to health, oh, yoga, Fitbit, meditation, kale, quinoa, chia seeds, right? That's not going to work beyond Bangsa, Damansara, Montkiara, right? So you really need a much more localized solution to be able to connect because health is about lifestyles and behaviors. And so you need to be relevant, not just from a language point of view, a culture point of view, to also understand local nuances, local insurance laws, local hospital systems. And they did differ very significantly. Indonesia's system is very different than Malaysia, very different than Thailand. So you've got to really commit to understanding it at a local micro level. So what's very interesting is, as you've mentioned, you break down the silos and you have all kinds of people. It's not just dietitians or like gynecologists, you have financial planners, mm-hmm. executive coach. Mm-hmm. And if you download another app, they will ask you like, what's your goal? Lose weight. So how does it all come together? For instance, if I want to lose weight, how do all these many, many people end up right. helping me? Sure. Well, so first of all, just because someone says they want to lose weight doesn't mean that's the main problem. Oftentimes, people may not tell you, like maybe their main issue might be depression, but they might not tell you. They just want to say lose weight. But I'll give you one example, right? Today, if you eat very healthily and you exercise regularly, you may still gain a lot of weight. Why? Stress, right? Or lack of sleep, right? Because when we're under stress, the body's reaction to pressure from your boss or pressure from work or pressure from family is the same way the body reacts as if a lion is chasing you. That's how the body's biology is designed. And one of the ways that humans survive over millennia was whenever we were confronted with an enemy, we ran away, right? And we would run away for days, sometimes weeks. And so the body learned that, you know, like that's the only way I can outsprint this line. Like I've just got to like be able to keep running. We were natural marathon runners thousands of years ago. But what that meant was the body would say, okay, look, I may not have food for a few days. So how am I going to survive? I send signals to retain every fat cell because fat is actually a very rich source of energy. So eat healthy and exercise. But if you're under stress, the body's deliberately holding your fat cells. So we have to get to the root cause of what's keeping you up at night and what's making you stress. And a lot of times it's work-related, which means the executive coach plays an important role for weight loss. The financial planner plays an important role for weight loss. Because if you're really worried about money, no amount of eating spinach and almonds are going to make you lose weight if you continue to hold a lot of that stress and pressure. So that's why I mean by we've got to look at it very holistically. Different people will have different pressures. And because healthcare is so siloed, a single individual can't help you. But the Nullary model is 
imagine if I gave you a multidisciplinary team and they're really a team because they work together and they're coordinated to help you at the center. And that's what we felt was different from what exists today out there in the market. So that's what we're trying to do. I mean, Digital Health is still relatively new in this region. What was it like to start a company and have to educate people about the fact that digital health is important and life-transforming? Well, I mean, that's something I'm incredibly passionate about. Like, I wouldn't do it if I looked at it as a chore or a task. Like, it genuinely is something that I derive so much energy from. And it starts with me emulating the lifestyles. Because if I don't practice what I preach, no one's going to listen to me. So I have to be 100% convinced myself. And then I've got to be able to show people. People don't listen to what you tell them. They watch what you do. And ultimately, it's building these stories and just kind of convincing people one at a time, one organization at a time. And is that why you produce so much content online as well? I mean, you have your own YouTube channel, you're active on Instagram. That's unusual for a busy CEO of a startup. Well, uh, maybe it is. But number one, actually, I did it because I just wanted to learn about digital marketing, right? Like I'm a believer in you have to do to learn. You can't learn from a book or listen to a webinar. You've got to like get your hands dirty. So it started by just wanting to learn. What is digital marketing? What's social media? It's put yourself out there and learn from it. But over time, right, it actually became something that was useful for me. I benefited from it because it forced me to clarify my thoughts and put it in a three-minute, five-minute version so that people can get bite-sized. Putting one idea into only three to five minutes is hard, but it forces you to think and it sharpens your thought process, right? And so it benefits me and that's why I keep doing it. So one of the big things that happened in your life was happened in May 2018. Mm. Can you share with us what happened? Wow. Okay. Well, you're talking about May 27, 2018, 8.55 a.m. I was cycling in Kuala Lumpur and a car came from behind at very high speeds and hit me. And I woke up in the intensive care unit with a fractured skull, bleeding in the brain, thorax four, five, six, seven fractured, three of my forelimbs in a cast. Left eye, I think, narrowly went blind because it was like millimeters away from my iris. So yeah, that, that's what happened on that fateful morning. I think a lot of people facing that kind of situation would want to give up, but you didn't do that. And in less than six months, you were running your Ironman. So what was it that spurred you on? and exceeded any expectations people have for you? Well, first, it wasn't like I'm naturally motivated or I'm different. I experienced the same darkness, the same bouts of depression, the same anxiety and panic attacks. But I'm fortunate because my co-founders and Naluri are psychologists and doctors. And the single message they help remind me is when we're faced with these crises and problems, if we just focus on the problem, it's never ending, right? Your head's just constantly spinning, thinking about the big problems that you simply, there is no answer to, certainly not lying on bed. So instead they say, look, just focus on what are you going to act on? What are you going to do differently tomorrow? And in my case, it was like, okay, day number seven, learn to get off the bed and take my first few steps, five steps, and then walk five steps accomplishment. Next day, let's try seven steps. The next day after that, let's try 10. And that's the whole idea is if I have something that I can focus on that I'm acting on, that I can see progress, I focus on that and the mind briefly stops thinking about all the big problems. And so it's just like breaking it down to the smallest possible task each day and focusing on that. That got me eventually. So when you first start, you think, okay, seven steps is hard. No way I can do an Ironman, right? Like you don't even imagine it. 
But if I thought like, oh my God, I'm supposed to do an Ironman in six months, I wouldn't have even bothered to start. But I just, my expectation was just five steps the first day and seven steps the next day, which means every day I just take two or three little steps a bit more, I'll eventually grow. It's like, you know, people say if every day you just somehow become 1% better in a year, you actually become 37 times better than when you started. Do you feel like having gone through that experience that there's really nothing that can face you now? Oh, no. Look, so I, I don't think I'm unfazed. I have a lot more anxieties. I, I still have a lot of problems. It's not that I, I don't experience that fear. I do. It's just at least I now have something to remind myself, okay, I don't know how to get out of this tight spot. What am I going to do today that will make a difference? Maybe it's just, okay, send out one email today. Let's see whether that makes a difference or not. Tomorrow, break it down. One more action, one more action, one more action. That's the formula. But the fear is still there. The fear doesn't go away. And do you experience fear when COVID hit and you had to really rethink the way that you were operating, Valerie? Completely, right? I mean, we were fighting for survival, running out of cash. We stopped taking salaries because things were highly uncertain. Clients, all projects were put on hold, no revenues coming in. It was extremely scary. I believe you recently closed another round of funding. What was it like fundraising before COVID and during COVID itself? Well, I think fundraising anytime is hard because it's a lot of numbers. Like, you know, remember 115 investors in iFlix, 115 rejections, no different here. So just because you went through that, like every time you got to go through the numbers. So you cannot let first 50 rejections hold you back. But remember from college days, right? I've got my wall of shame. Like one thing that I'm really experienced with is failure and rejection. So it gets better in that sense. Like, or it's not so much it gets easier, but your skin gets a bit thicker. So when you began Ellery in 2017, you said that you gave yourself a self-imposed five-year deadline to make it work. Has that changed? Mm. Like how is it? No, I don't no, I don't think so. I think, well, what's interesting is next year is our fifth year. Yeah. I think we want to be able to, I think, really take it to the next level by next year. So what's in the future for you? Well, what I'm really obsessed about is, you know, really transforming people's lives, right? Like if we can reverse diabetes and really help people live longer, even if they've got heart diseases or cancer, and very important for me is mental health. How do we make it front and center? How do we reduce suicide attempts and reduce burnouts and depression? That counts for anything else. More than the money, more than the size of the organization, it's how many lives can we truly positively affect? And one final question before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. You have mentioned before that you suffer from confirmation bias. So mm. who, who are your mirrors? Ah, okay. Well, a few different points. I think number one, you know, in my book, chapter eight, I talk about my mirrors, my personal board of directors, seven of my peers who also run their own businesses. And we've been together for over 10 years where we meet very regularly to share experiences. And it's because, number one, I have to actually talk about what I'm going through in a safe environment where I'm not judged. This is the challenge of being a CEO, right? Like, how do you truly open up to your problems, to your board and investors, to your colleagues, to your business partners? Very hard. You have to always put up a front. So first is to have that safe space where you can truly open up. And second, because I have to explain it to people, it clarifies my thought process. And because it's done regularly, right? They listen to me 
my progress or lack of progress at least eight times a year, there are trends, right? A lot of us think, oh, mentors, let me go talk to this one guy and get an idea. That is not mentorship. That's not very effective. Someone can't just give you impromptu advice. But if you stick with it, you build a relationship and they understand the, the context, the journey, and they're also sharing similar experiences. That's where I think the, the power of what I call mirrors kicks in, right? So that's, I think, my number one mirror. I think my, my other mirrors for sure are my own kids because they look at the world very differently. They're a completely different generation, you know? So just kind of hearing them and watching and observing them and seeing how they tackle things differently, that for me is another source of uh, a mirror for me, right? Is to look at life through their lens and not through mine. That point you mentioned just now about having other CEO group people always giving mm. you that advice. I, I never I give you. advice. We share experiences and we decide on our own, what do we take? What are we going to learn from other people? Because they're just telling their story. But the moment I tell you what to do, you don't have ownership of that idea. Oh, well, I'm doing it because someone told me to do it. So that's why I'm not a believer in seeking or giving advice. But I'm a big believer in creating a safe space for people to just open up and communicate. Do you have any advice for people seeking to create that safe space and finding that circle of people that you could trust to share sure. the most vulnerable parts? Well, I think more and more organizations realize the power of this format. So, I mean, another organization is called Entrepreneurs Organization. They've got a very similar format. Women with Lean In Circles, very similar format. Other organizations, H2, I think a lot more founder, startup founder organizations are creating these spaces. But you don't have to join one of these organizations. It's a lot easier because it's been structured. But figure out who are the four or five people that you think you want to learn from and you think that they can learn from each other and invite them to a group. And if you want to know what are the mechanics, how do we do it? Get my book and read chapter eight. Point by point, this is how it gets done. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Azwan, for your time. It's been such a pleasure. I normally end all of my interviews with this. So the mm -hmm. first question is this, do you feel like you have found your why? Yes, I do. I think just for me, defining the Ikigai, what started off in Snellery, because the intersection of what I do well, sort of starting businesses, defining the problem, rallying people around a vision, what I personally am passionate about, human performance, endurance, you know, like Iron Man is about the mind giving up first before the body. So if you can overwrite your mind, your body can do so many more amazing things that you thought possible. Our mind is our biggest limiter. And third, it's the impact to society because today over a billion people don't have proper health care, right? In Malaysia, nine out of 10 people who need mental health care support are not getting mental health care support. In states like Sarawak, there are only about two or three qualified clinical psychologists, right? If you go to a government hospital, your wait list may be nine months. So can we use digital to kind of really democratize access to good mental health care and good chronic disease management? I think we can. And, and that's why to me, like this is something I'm really, really passionate about. And it is my why. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? To me, if there is one, it is human longevity. Longevity is a choice. Aging doesn't have to be inevitable. 
because it starts with us as humans believing in ourselves that we, we can actually significantly improve our mental or physical or emotional or spiritual lives. We can constantly find new technologies with precision medicine, with CRISPR gene editing, with a lot of new sensors that are coming out. We can actually win the battle against aging-related diseases. But it starts with a belief that, you know, for us as humans, going past 100 should be the norm, not something like, wow, right? That person is approaching 100 that's out of average, right? It, it needs to be the norm. And I think it can. So if I can do my part in moving us towards believing in human potential and human longevity, that would be the best legacy I can think of. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think a successful person is basically someone who feels comfortable where they are right now, rather than constantly thinking, I need to be somewhere else. So that means you're doing what you love. You're doing what you feel purposeful. You are making an impact today. So success is being comfortable with what you're doing now and not like, oh, if only I have this or I have that or I'm doing this or I'm doing that. That for me is success. And where can people go to follow you, support what you're doing, and follow your Ironman experience? Well, for, for now, of course, uh, all Ironman races are, are on hold, so I don't have a lot to share that. But otherwise, I'm on social media, probably most active on LinkedIn or azranosmanrani.com. You know, information on my book is available there. Or if not, you know, you can always download the Nullary app and, you know, I'm also available on it to just chat. And is there anything else you'd like to share that we haven't covered yet? Well, I think we've covered a lot, right? But I think if anything, I would encourage everyone to just think, what's the one small thing I can do differently tomorrow and do it? And that was the end of episode 46. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothismywhy.com forward slash 46, alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting one of the co-founders of Rice Inc., a social enterprise that won the highly prestigious one US million dollar help prize that is run by the UN and also former president Bill Clinton. And we cover his entire journey from how he was very into politics and entrepreneurship when he was a child and also ran, by the way, a Pokemon Go walkathon here. So how he ended up pivoting from what he was doing in life sciences to something that was more business related and the entire journey of just participating in the one-year-long help prize from accelerator to going to Myanmar, working with the farmers on the ground, learning their issues with rice and how they raised funds that allowed them to run the pilot program while also going to the UN and just having the most incredible and crazy experience, including being locked in the UN. On the learn more, see you next Sunday. <laughs>